From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm, and it's my pleasure on this Friday afternoon, Friday evening, to be sitting in for Tony Perkins here on Washington Watch as we wind down this week and send you into the weekend a very interesting a week in Washington, D.C., as they all seem to be headlined, of course, by the impeachment trial. And yes, we have moved into another administration, but yes, we are still talking primarily about the past administration. Um, we're going to talk about a little bit uh, about that with Ken Blackwell. We're also going to talk today about the expansion of the child tax credits. We are, of course, pro-family. We are pro-children. We like children. We want people to have children. What role should the government be playing in encouraging that and, in fact, funding that? We're going to have that conversation. We're also going to talk to Wes Allen, who is an Alabama state representative who has sponsored the Vulnerable Child Compassion and Protection Act. And what it does is it prohibits uh, health care providers from helping minors change their gender. Um, we're going to talk to him about why he's doing that and what he hopes to accomplish. And then at the end of the program... In a uh, in a more I don't they're all thoughtful segments but in a thoughtful segment we hope um, we're going to talk about how Christians should think about unity. We all know that uh, many of those same people who were uh, who were heralding the patriotism of criticizing your president are now calling for unity. How should Christians think about that? Of course, unity is a good thing. Are we to unite with the current administration or not? We're going to talk about that with David Clausen uh, from. Family Research Council. He is the head of our Center for Ethics and Biblical Worldview. But first, before we get to all that great content, um, we're going to uh, see the week that was in the Senate on the trial and the impeachment. We know that uh, President Biden has been in office for uh, nearly a month, but a lot of people are still hung up on impeaching Donald Trump. Now, does it make sense to impeach someone who's no longer in office? office, and that's what we're discussing. And the Democrats, of course, have sought to blame the events of January 6th on President Trump and saying he incited it. It was his doing. Uh, Meanwhile, at the end of the week, his defense team has been primarily focused on pointing out other things that other people have said that have been equally bad or arguably worse than the things that President Trump said that nobody was impeached for. And to start this off, uh, to remind you of some of these, it's likely that you've heard, but why not? There's such gold. We're going to play them again for you, Bobby. If you got that, um, let's introduce uh, Ken. Uh, but before we get there, let's get into some of these clips and just remind people what we're talking about for context. I have an objection because 10 of the 29 electoral votes cast by Florida were cast by electors not lawfully certified. I object to the votes from the state of Wisconsin, which were not, should not be legally certified. No debate. Mr. President, I object to the certificate from the state of Georgia on the grounds that the electoral votes no, were no not. No debate. There's no debate. And I object to the certificate uh, from the state of North Carolina. I object to the 15 votes from the state of North Carolina. Um, I object. I object to the certificate from the state of Alabama. The electors were not lawfully certified. Is it signed by a senator? Not as of yet, Mr. President. In that case, the objection cannot be entertained. The objection cannot be entertained. Counting debate is uh, not in order. Ballot. Even with the there is no debate in order. Is it signed by a senator? 
Right there is no debate. There is no debate in the joint session. There is no debate. There is no debate. There is no debate. Please come to order. The objection cannot be received. But the Russian Section 18, Title III of the United States Code prohibits debate in the joint session. I do not wish to debate. I wish to ask, is there one United States Senator who will join me in this letter There is no debate. There is no debate. The gentlewoman will suspend. And what you hear there, of course, is, uh, is, is now President Biden, but um, presiding over the Senate um, as vice president. And what you hear is the fact that there are uh, – this is not the first time somebody has objected to the uh, – to the, the process involved in seating a president. And so this is not necessarily novel. Um, and we're going to get to some other clips as well, um, just kind of in terms of the... Um in terms of the decorum and the demeanor and is it terror and the things that have been said um, that could arguably be inciting. Now, joining me now to talk about all of this is C FRC's Senior Fellow for Human Rights and Constitutional Governments, Ken Blackwell. Ken, thanks for taking the time today. Hey, Joseph, good to be with you. Uh, well, it's quite, it's quite a production. Well, quite it is a quite a production. And, you know, wh what are your high-level thoughts right now about what's, what's going on in, in, in the Capitol? Well, first, I think we ought to start with the fact that the Constitution carefully sets out the extremely narrow and limited role in our democratic republic for impeachment, of the, the process for removing those in power without going to the ballot box. It is a serious matter for anyone other than the voters to remove a public official. What is ironic in this case is that the target of this assault by the Democrats, Donald J. Trump, is already out of office. The voters have spoken, uh, and so there is no constitutional basis for this proceeding, this production that we are that, that we are that we are witnessing. You know, second point is that the First Amendment is part of the Constitution, the foundational part of the Constitution, which is the supreme law of the land. So anything protected by the First Amendment cannot be uh, in any way uh, any sort of crime because it supersedes criminal law. Therefore, any senator sworn to follow the Constitution in this trial cannot consider anything protected by, the by a constitutional right to be criminal grounds for impeachment and conviction. So this is the, what we're witnessing is rank hypocrisy. The, that, those clips that you just ran, uh, this, this is clear evidence that Donald Trump is not the first to question the integrity of the process that was used in a presidential election. You know, I was once even involved in objections raised in the January 6, 2005 joint session of Congress, where there were members of Congress, Democrats, who who questioned whether or not the votes from Ohio, uh, the the electoral college votes, should be counted. You know, I think I think you make 
you make a, a really important valid point in all of this that this is not the first time that people have objected to to, uh, to election results and made all sorts of accusations and, and, and you see there just from uh, just from four years ago in the most recent uh, presidential election there were many objections there were lots of people who uh, who did not believe the election uh, of Donald Trump was valid and protested it in fact the entire time and and Ken I, I don't know if you saw the story about how a a, a, a DA in Fulton County, Georgia, is apparently considering uh, criminal charges, according to one article um, that I saw earlier today, and I don't have it in front of me, so I can't reference it, unfortunately, but what you've said brought this to mind. How much of this do you think is just an uh, inability to let Donald Trump go? Uh, th- th- this is almost in their own words, if if you listen to the 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 presentation by uh, uh, former President Trump's attorneys. They play clips that expose the real objective of this Hollywood production that the Democrats are, are, are taking us to. And that is to take away from Donald Trump any opportunity to run again or to be a political influencer. Uh, and, and, and they're doing it in unconstitutional ways. They're doing it in ways that expose them as being big hypocrites. Uh, and they're, they're, it's not going to work. And I think in the, in the final analysis, what they're going to wind up doing is strengthening the bond between Donald Trump and those 75 million people who voted for him and those folks who have questions about the anomalies and the irregularities and illegalities that did take place in this past election under the cover of COVID-19. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, and, and I, I, I want to highlight something that you just said there about the relationship that Donald Trump has uh, with his, his voters and his base of support. Uh, which is not insignificant, which is, in fact, very significant, right? Because he got the most votes an incumbent president has ever gotten before. Now, according to some, Joe Biden got a lot more than that. But he has a lot of support out there. And and I think psychologically this is interesting because, um, you know, Donald Trump has always kind of been the, the, the strong man, the tough guy persona. But to what extent do you think this um, – this makes him a more sympathetic character in, in the mind of people who are not just predisposed to hate him. Now, there's Trump haters, of course, and, and, and whatever. But what, middle America, is there is there some sense of, like, guys, can we just move on and stop talking about Trump? Do you think that this will, in fact, endear him to more voters and create sympathy for him? Oh, absolutely. I think it's going to backfire. And I think what they're doing is trying to, to actually uh, – erase the concerns that other folks have about this past election. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. Every president who gained votes in a re-election campaign uh, has also won re-election over the last 150 years. Trump gained a, a million, 11 million, 11 million more votes uh, than he did in his first election. Uh, you know, Joe, Joe Biden shattered the popular vote 
record, but won a record low of 17% of the counties in this country. You know, they're, they're just, you know, Trump won 18 of the 19 bellwether counties, which have been near, which have a near perfect record over the past 40 years. We, we watched the chain of custody be broken in many of these states and counties. We, in fact, saw an abandonment of voter verification laws that helped protect us against, you know, not only voter irregularities but voter fraud. You know, and as a, as a consequence, you know, people are, are, are very concerned about House Bill 1 and Senate Bill 1 presently under consideration that will make some of these, you know, uh, policies that put us in a more weakened and vulnerable position permanent record. Take, yeah. you know, it would, it would take the authority for elections away from states and counties and give it to the central government. And Joseph, I just asked yeah. the question, can you name me something that the central government has taken over from the people and government closest to the people and they've it, done a better job? No. It's exactly right. It doesn't it doesn't get better and Ken and, and we're gonna have to come back and talk about um, their their election legislation. But very, very quickly, when is this gonna be done and is it going to succeed the impeachment? I think it's gonna be done probably early next week, Tuesday or Wednesday, and no, it will not. He will be acquitted. He will be acquitted, and uh, which means he may be back. Uh, Ken Blackwell, thank you so much for joining us. Folks, coming up on the other side, we're going to talk to FRC's Director of Federal Affairs for Life and Human Dignity, Connor Semmelsberger. We're going to talk to him about the expansion of the child tax credit right after the break. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I'd finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org Bible. Got it checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, 
Even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the World's Foremost Violator of Religious Freedom. To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm, in case we haven't met yet. And I am sitting in for Tony Perkins today on Washington Watch. Give him a jump start on the weekend. You know it pays to have children. Those of us who are parents, we know that it pays to have children because we get the love, care, and affection of having children. But in a more literal sense, it might start paying more financially to have children with an expansion, possibly, of the child tax credit. There's a number of different versions of this, and there is a debate going on. Uh, this is a very interesting debate. It's an intra-Utah debate. I don't know if that's actually a thing, but there are two August senators from the state of uh, Utah, uh, Senator Lee and Romney, who seem to have a disagreement about these things. And joining me to break down their respective plans, find out which would be the most beneficial for you and your children, is FC's Director of Federal Affairs for Life and Human Dignity, Connor Semmelsberger. That's a mouthful, Connor. Welcome to the program. Great to be on with you, Joseph. Well, we are glad to have you. Tell us what we need to know. Um, isn't this is this hostile for Utah? I mean, aren't they supposed to get along? They're really nice people in Utah, and it seems that they're they're quarreling over this. Yeah, there is that disagreement on how exactly should Congress address the the financial issues for the families families are facing today. And you know, there's two really good plans, but there's a strong difference between them. Mike Lee and, and Senator Marco Rubio from Florida have banded together essentially to take the existing child tax credit, the great system that's already in place, and just expand it to have more money going out to, to families to help subsidize all the all the child care costs that, that a family has to cover for children. Um, and, and that's a great way to get, get money into the hands of families and help them grow. But the key to that is they, they want to continue to have incentives for families to marry, to, to, to create in the first place, but also to work. And that's the big difference between his plan, Lee's plan, and Romney's plan, which is 
more so almost a universal basic income, a monthly income for families that have children, around $250 a month per child um, uh, for the whole child's life up till they're 18 years old. But there's no tie whatsoever in Romney's plan to make sure that the family finds stable work and, and it can have a steady income that's not reliant on the federal government continuing to kick in those, those checks every single month. So it's a, a lively debate happening here in D.C., and that's kind of the big sticking point between the two. Now, has Senator Romney said why he believes it's better to just write checks to families for every kid they have every month as opposed to the the child tax credit system that we've had before? Why does he think that change is necessary? Yeah, so he's come at this in a way to hopefully simplify the federal uh, subsidies that go out to families. So his goal overall is to get rid of some of the existing programs and consolidate all behind one simple check out to families. But what he hasn't addressed is why not have the, the, the need for families to continue to seek work and how some of these federal policies can actually incentivize single single people to marry, to begin their families, um, to have at least a parent working in the home so that it's not fully reliant on federal subsidies. But it's not something that's really addressed in Romney's plan or or President Biden's plan that he's pushing through Congress as we speak. And 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 you you make a good point there about marriage and and the the social science is really clear that um, economically, uh, emotionally. Children are in a, going to be in a better situation, not even if their parents are together, but if their parents are married. Um, the outcomes for, for children when it comes to – outcomes for families when it comes to poverty is that e, that when you live together, your situation is much more similar to a single-headed household than to a married household. Do any of these programs incentivize people uh, the, to get married before they get these benefits? Yeah, and so that's part of uh, the the child tax credit in and of itself, something Family Research Council was actually uh, key in implementing uh, all those years ago when this program first started. And and in in these tax policies, the key is to ensure that there aren't marriage penalties. For a long time, single tax filers were able to get a certain subsidy, but whenever you got married, instead of doubling it, because now you have two income earners, it was only one and a half or even single single type of benefit. And so that's what the child tax credit and a lot of these family-oriented policies do is to ensure that when couples marry, it's actually an incentive instead of a decentive to be married, because you're exactly right. Families forming, and not just forming, but remaining together to rear children in society, bring them up in their church, community, and family is something that no matter what stripe you come from, the federal and state governments should get behind in, in, in helping to form those families. Now... The it's it's the primary difference between the Lee Rubio and and the Romney plan is direct payments or not correct is that is that a fair yes, assessment essentially and and so how how does Biden's plan um, how is that different than those other two. Yeah, so his his is trying to increase the child tax credit, like we already discussed, to a higher amount, up up about a thousand dollars. But it's also a very similar plan to Romney's in, in shelling out those plans month by month. Now, while that might seem good, again, there's no tie that there needs to be work. There's no tie that there needs to be a you know a family actually striving to do good in society. You know. That's the thing about uh, Biden's plan is that it's not family focused. It does help to bring children to the world, but it, it has no regard on what types of environment those children are being brought into, how they're going to be raised. 
And the other thing is uh, his plan is to expand child care. Again, something that is really hard for families financially to find child care these days, especially during COVID. And instead of finding a family-centric, you know, local community-based child care incentive, it, rather it's a big government incentive that just hands out, again, direct cash money, regardless of economic situation, whether you're poor or rich, regardless of family formation, just a direct money to subsidize government-run child care centers and supposed to actually building up good child care options for families so, you know, they can decide for themselves whether it's best to have one or two parents working, whether it's best to have child care in the home as opposed to taking it to more institutionalized child care. So, again, it's really taking those decisions out from the families and making it all come back to the government making those decisions for families. Right. Now, you know, Connor, the, the child tax credit has been around for a while, and those of us who are parents are, are thankful for it very practically. Is there evidence? What's the impact been of the child tax credit? Has it accomplished the goal that, that, that its proponents hoped it would accomplish when it was originally an idea? It has, and it's even even done even more than that. In those 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that President Trump was able to get through showed that expanding the existing child tax credit to help families better does work and puts families in a much better position. Awesome. Well, Connor, thanks for taking the time for joining us and all that you do on the Hill. Friends, coming up on the other side, we're going to talk to Alabama State Representative Wes Allen about the Vulnerable Child Compassion and Protection Act. Should doctors be able to help minors change their gender? We'll talk about it next. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, i definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. 
Okay, that's stand firm. Yep, stand firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I'm sitting in for Tony Perkins today. You can get this show and every show at TonyPerkins.com. Once you discover that you want to re-listen to the fabulous content that we are delivering you today, and tell your friends, which you can do, including information about the following. The Vulnerable Child Compassion and Protection Act in Alabama is now one step closer to safeguarding kids from gender reassignment as minors after the Senate Health Care Committee in Alabama voted 11 to 2 in favor of the bill. The legislation would not allow doctors to administer or suggest gender transition drugs or perform gender transition surgery on minors in the state of Alabama. Joining me now to talk about it is State, state Representative Wes Allen, who serves the 89th District of Alabama. Representative Alan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Joseph. I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you this afternoon. Well, we are glad to have you. First things first, tell us the 89th District of Alabama. Where in Alabama is that? Well, I live in Troy, and the 89th District represents all of Pike County, which is uh, Troy is about an hour south of Montgomery, about an hour north of Dothan, so we're right in between, but uh, Pike County and uh, about half of Dale County, which is right below Pike. Well, it, it's a beautiful state. It's a beautiful part of the world, and, and we thank you for your service to it. Now, uh, tell me, if you would, how did you come to be involved in this issue, sponsoring this legislation? What's your motivation? Well, the motivation is to protect children, Joseph. Um, you know, when I learned that this was going on in our state of Alabama, I was really shocked that uh, – puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones were being given to minors, you know, those 19 and under. And, you know, uh, the most important thing that we can be doing as legislators is taking care and protecting children. And so that's that's really the motivation behind it, and uh, that's that's what got the legislation going. And, and uh, we are, uh, you know, we, we presented uh, House Bill 1, which is the House version, the version that I'm introducing, um, we, we had a public hearing on it last week in Judiciary Committee. And uh, Senator Shea Shellnut, who is upstairs in the Senate, uh, he, he has SB 10. And, of course, the Health Committee last week voted his version out. So uh, things appear to be going very well for us in this legislation. That's great. Now, what are the greatest harms that you perceive from the ability of 13, 14, 15, I mean, frankly, seven or eight-year-olds could could do this and in some cases have been known to. What's the greatest harm that you see in that happening? Well, you know, there's, from my research, there's been really no rigorous studies, uh, long-term rigorous studies as a, uh, to, to the long-term effects of these puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones being given being given to minors and you know when 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 you're a young child you know you don't think like you do like an adult does you know i'm sure you didn't think when you were 13 years old you, you know you think different now than, yeah. than you're an adult yeah. so lord uh, willing i hope i've i've learned something yes right so so uh we just want to give kids time to mature and studies show and suggest that 80 to 95 percent of children that uh 
that go through uh, some confusion that may not believe they're in the right bodies, if, if they are loved and, and given some, uh, some, some therapy and, and that they will grow out of it and, and grow to accept God, uh, who God made them and, and grow to accept their bodies. What is your response to the argument that I'm sure you've heard that you are primarily uh, motivated by bigotry and you just hate people, so you want to prevent them from being happy? Well, that, that's the you know furthest thing from the truth. You know, you know we want to protect kids, and um, you know I don't believe we're protecting children when we allow them uh, to take these powerful drugs that are used off-label uh, that you know blocks puberty because puberty is not a disease. Uh, you know, we all go through it. Uh, we all went through it, and uh, we need to be protecting these kids and, and, and showing them compassion, but at the same time. Uh, affirming that um, that you know if they are born male that they're male and if they're born female they're a female, and and we don't need to be allowing the, the prescription of these powerful drugs that we don't know the the long term ramifications. I mean we we've, we've seen that uh, a powerful testosterone when given to females and estrogen given to males you know that can uh, have some just long term damage uh, you know uh, on their bodies and and right. so. We just want to protect these kids, and, and, and you know, we really can't listen to the, to the uh, opposition on, on that charge. You know, I'm, I'm from the state of Washington and uh, worked in the legislature there for many years. And during my time there, um, one of the bills that was passed prohibited minors from going to tanning beds. Um, so, you know, parental permission or not, if you were under the age of 18, the legislature, in its wisdom, saw fit to uh, not allow student uh, minors to go to a tanning bed because they deemed it too dangerous. But in that state, in most states, frankly, in the country, you can um, you can totally interfere with the natural functioning of the body and even surgically modify your body, and that is apparently um, not harmful for kids. That doesn't make much sense, does it? No, no, it doesn't. And, you know, we've got to make sure we protect our kids. And, uh, you know, we're looking forward to advocating for this deal uh, in the weeks to come. Well, Representative Wes Allen, we thank you so much for your service to the state, to your service for the young people in the state of Alabama, and we wish you Godspeed. Coming up, we're going to talk to FRC's Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview, David Clawson, about how Christians should think about unity. Coming up on the other side of the break. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. 
Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org slash Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch, friends, sending you into your Friday. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins. We know, we know because we've been alive and we've been awake, we know that America is experiencing division. We are divided along a lot of lines, uh, certainly politically. Uh, we are divided racially. We are divided economically in a lot of ways. There are things that are different. I mean, in some ways, we're just different. But there are divisions that are more serious and actually problematic. And everybody, at least in principle, is interested in solving some of those problems. But how are Christians supposed to pursue unity? We know a lot of the people who told us for um, four years that the criticism of President Trump was the most patriotic thing someone could do, are now saying we have to get behind the president because he's the president. Um, is that true? Is that fair? And, and, and we as Christians, uh, because we, are, we know that our, all authority is appointed by God and serves his ultimate purposes, and we are commanded not only to pray for our authorities, but to submit to them as well, provided that they do not tell us to do things God does not want us to do. We do submit to our governing authorities. Does that mean we can't criticize? Does that mean we have to support? We have to get behind? How should Christians think about unity? That's what we're going to talk about today at the end of this program with FRC's Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview and all-around great guy, 
David Clausen. David, welcome. Well, it's great to be back on with another all-around great guy. Thanks for having me on, Joseph. Well, I am so glad that you're here um, because I want you to help us understand this, unpack this a little bit. Um, what's what's the deal with, with how should be, we be thinking about y- unity? What does this mean? And I want to start by why don't you give us your sense of what is unity? We say unity. There's lots of words, right, that we think we know what they mean, but we don't necessarily define them. We all like love. We all oppose hate. Um, nobody wants to discriminate. We use these words. We think we know what they mean. And I have a sense of what unity means. When you say that, when you hear that word, what does that mean to you? Yeah, that's a, a great question, Joseph. And it, if we're talking about kind of the buzzword for 2021, so far it seems to be unity. I, I looked up Joe Biden's inaugural address, and I think he used the word unity uh, nine times, saying that we, you know, we need to unite our people, unite our nation, unite to fight the common foes. Uh, unity is the path forward. Without unity, there's no peace. If we unite, we can do great, important things. And so it, it, it kind of does seem to be the buzzword here in D.C. Everyone's talking about the need for unity. But I think it's really important to realize when we're talking about unity, we're, unity in and of itself is really a, a morally neutral term. Uh, unity in and of itself is not a virtue. Uh, unity, uh, whether it is um, what determines whether unity is morally praiseworthy or morally contemptible, is what we are uniting around to advance. Uh, what is the basis of our unity? If you, you think about it, the united efforts at the Tower of Babel yeah. uh, in Scripture, that sure. was not good unity. Yeah, there's uh, some the drug Jewish cartels unity. in Mexico that are very united, right? No, absolutely. Uh, that's bad unity. When churches come together to fund the seminary education for their pastors, or you and I work together to tell more people about Jesus, that's good unity. And so, again, unity for the sake of unity uh, isn't necessarily a, a morally praiseworthy thing. It's what are we uniting our common energy and efforts to advance? I think I think that's a really good point, and as a, in a, something of a tangent here, but I think we'll be related to the importance of defining what we mean and not allowing ourselves to be sucked into sentiments. And the the, the word unity might be um, just suggesting a sentiment that we want to agree when, with. And another way this happens in our in our public discourse is the word discrimination. We're supposed to think that's bad every time we hear the word discrimination, right? And so we are supposed to run and hide every time somebody says that's discrimination, when in reality, as with unity, discrimination is a morally neutral thing. It really just depends on what are you discriminating about? Along which lines are you discriminating? Because if you're discriminating against somebody because they're, uh, you know, they're a predator and, you know, or they're a, a child abuser, whatever that is, and you don't want them to watch your kids, you're discriminating against them. Of course, that's just called wisdom, judgment, right? Um, but in this context, um, we're talking about unity and the lines along which um, we unify with people matters a lot. How do you think in the popular culture, in the world, the calls for unity we're hearing right now, how do you think they mean unity when they say it's time to unite? Well, I think it's pretty clear, Joseph, when you look, let's just, I I mentioned him earlier, that the the new president of the United States, he, he called a lot for unity, but increasingly so, it seems that those calls for unity were really demands for uniformity. Uh, well, do you, do you, you think that means fall in line? Yeah, do you think he means support me? 
Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's exactly – well, supporting the kind of a, a left-wing agenda, just look at the executive orders we've seen in the first couple of weeks, whether it's the transgender military uh, – Redefining sex across federal agencies yeah. to to mean gender identity, sexual orientation, uh, executive order uh, undoing the Mexico City policy. You know those calls for unity, unfortunately, are starting to ring shallow uh, in light of this very progressive agenda we've seen in the first month of the administration. So again, those calls for unity, we need to be really careful what we're talking about. As Christians, yeah, we're called to unify, but we're called to unify around things that Scripture tells us are good and true and beautiful. That our, our source yeah. of unity is the Holy Spirit under the authority of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point. Um, what are we unifying around? We're going to get to that, too. But answer another question. We're going to get to that in a moment, I'll say. But talk to me about whether you think criticism is always a lack of unity. Is it always? Are we always creating disunity if you're critical of something? Yeah, I don't think so. So, Joseph, I, you know, I live here in D.C. and get to work in politics, but I really got to cut my teeth in kind of a, uh, Baptist politics when I first joined staff at church, and you know, uh, just even church politics. A, 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 are those a thing? A, oh my goodness! You know, just <laughs> leading a youth group, you're going to be criticized yeah. on all ends, and so you know, criticism in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I think a sign. The hallmark of a good leader is that they can receive criticism and be willing to uh, adjust course if necessary. Um, but I, I think you're right. Uh, people just construe any kind of criticism as just an automatic rejection of who they are or a shot at their character. And, and again, that's uh, not being careful with our, our language. Yeah, and I, I think the point there that I wanted to highlight is, is the idea that sometimes I think, and again, we're still kind of defining the terms in some sense, some people say, Let's be united, which means stop asking questions, stop being critical, stop objecting, stop trying to understand why we're doing what we're doing. Let's be united. Just do what you're told. And, and I think, and, and to, the, to your point there, I think that is actually, if that is what someone means by let's be united, and they don't always mean that, but if that is what someone means, that is a very clear sign that unity does not exist. Hopefully we have all been in work environments or on teams where everybody uh, feels the freedom to express themselves and say what they think and ask a question and express reservations. I think the, the more free that people feel to express their concerns about things in safety, psychological safety, where I know I can say this and there's not going to be any harm to me, I actually think that is evidence of the fact that this is a, a safe environment where people are united, where the goal is understood, so people feel free to give criticism and receive criticism because ultimately they're... Um, they're in agreement about what the goal is and what we're trying to accomplish. And I think when dissent is not allowed, and this is not necessarily a political statement, but when dissent is not allowed, I think, and, and, it's, and it's forbidden and it's shamed and it's discouraged, that to me is one of the clearest signs that unity does not exist. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely, Joseph. I'd agree with it. And when dissent or criticism continues to get suppressed, I think that's a sign of tyranny. Um, and I, I, unfortunately, we've seen a couple of stories just even this week in the news 
as far as just going along with the whole cancel culture movement that we've we've seen happening now for a year that if you kind of step out of line if you alter if you offer any sort of alternative perspective or even if you said something years ago uh, you are therefore canceled. You, you're no longer uh, can be a part of polite company. And I think we, that if we're, our society continues to move down that road, that's not a good place to be for a, a healthy, vibrant democracy. In Scripture, we, we know in, in Jesus' prayer in, in John 17, yes, it's John 17, yes. um, the, the prayer that he gives where he prays that we are united. And, and we see lots of imagery in the Psalms about how blessed it is when brothers live together in unity. So we know that unity is a, is a desirable, um, it, it's either a desirable thing or a desirable condition. When scripture is talking about that, uh, paint us a picture. What do you think that Jesus was thinking when he prayed that, that we would, uh, have unity with him and with each other? Yeah, that's such a good question. You know, uh, like I said earlier, unity in and of itself is not morally praiseworthy or morally uh, contemptible. It's what we unite ourselves around. I think, uh, but what I would say is Christian unity is morally good. It is morally commendable. And Christian unity, Joseph, gets its things, uh, gets its goodness, you could say, from a few things. The source of Christian unity is the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 4, chapter 13, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of truth, um, or excuse me, the bond of peace. Christian unity is uh, centered around truth. Um, the goal of Christian unity, you referenced John 17, is that uh, John 17, verse 21 says, uh, Jesus says, I ask in his, his high priestly prayer that, may, uh, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one so that the world may believe, but may believe that you have sent me. Jesus in the high priestly prayer is talking about Christian believers, that we should be unified under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And what's the aim of that? What's the result of that unity? It's that it's a, a testimony to the gospel so that the world uh, may believe in the, the truth uh, of Jesus Christ. And so you absolutely, Christian unity is something we should absolutely strive to, for. And that is, again, under the leadership of Jesus, under the authority of Scripture. Yeah, that's that's a. I think that's a good way of thinking about it and, and and talking about this is. And and I will say that for those who want to see some of my written comments on this subject, you can go to the FRC blog. Thinking biblically about unity was published this morning, and you can find that at frcblog.com. And and I, but I, but I think you know an analogy. This idea that what Jesus was praying for us to have his unity in him is the idea that it's like, like a sports team. Um, when you are on a, when you are on a, we just finished the Super Bowl, right? These, every team starts out at the beginning with the same goal. And because they have the same goal, they want to win the Super Bowl. They want to win the world series, whatever sport they're competing is because they have the same goal. That allows them to get over things. We know that on, a, on, on sports teams and certainly uh, in work environments that we've been in, we've, we've probably cooperated effectively with people who may not have been our favorite people. And for those of us who have been around the church, right, there are people in your church, I'm going to assume, David, in, in your church life, who you may not have wanted to spend 24 hours a day with, right? Absolutely. Yes. 
But that doesn't mean that we can't be united with them in spirit. Personalities are personalities. Um, and, you know, and by God's grace, not everybody, you know, I, I'm not always the kindest person to other people. But people can be united with each other and work effectively together when the goal is the same. And when we see and, our goal as a church is right. to glorify Jesus, our goal as a team is to win the Super Bowl. That's right, and that, that is the goal for Christians, Joseph. It, it's really ultimately the glory of God. That's why Paul, uh, he concludes that majestic letter to the Roman Christians by saying, uh, he essentially praying for them, saying, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of God. And so that You're right, that team analogy is helpful. As Christians, we have a goal. That goal is Jesus Christ, which means we can't unite with the world on things right. that deviate from that goal. So uh, abortion, the sexual revolution, pornography, all those things, we can't, get, uh, we can't countenance those. We can't go along with what the culture wants us to go on because Scripture has clearly outlined what our goal is, and those are the things we need to rally around. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's helpful for us as we hear these calls for unity. It's time to be united. Christians, uh, you know, a, a flag should, uh, you know, alarm should go off in their minds saying, okay, well, I like the idea of unity. What is the goal? And that can help us decide if we can be united with this or not. Because if the goal is to advance the, the, the sexual revolution and pollute the minds of children so that they're taught that gender doesn't matter and marriage can be anything what, that they want it to be and that children should be able to do whatever they want sexually as long as everybody involved is consenting, if that's the goal to create a culture that does that, then not only can we not join with that, According to, uh, to Galatians 5, we have an obligation to have no, or sorry, it's Ephesians 5, have no part with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. That's that we as believers, we can't be united with, with this. And, and, and one of the arguments that we hear often from the culture to incentivize us to unite with things we shouldn't is that it's loving. But remember in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth, which means that if we see iniquity, we can't be yoked with it. We can't be connected with it. We can't celebrate it. We can't endorse it. David Clausen, thanks for taking some time and being with us today. Thank you, Joseph. And... Folks, that's it for the weekend. We hope it's going to be blessed for you wherever you are. Uh, be in prayer for our country, for the situation, for your family. We need it. Be united primarily in Jesus, and you'll be reunited with others as well. Have a blessed, blessed weekend. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.